I'd ask that you turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And we'll pick up where we left off last week. Last week, if you remember, for review, uh, we learned that there were necessary criteria for apostles and prophets. That they were offices of a past time period. The prophets, of course, who wrote the Old Testament, they were authenticated by accurately foretelling future events. While the true apostles had to have both seen the resurrected Christ, and they had to have been commissioned by Christ, and they had to be verified by uh, legitimate miracles. Not just someone's hearing getting a little better. We're talking dead people not being dead anymore. Verifiable miracles that were performed by the apostles. We also learn that the apostles and prophets in, in Scripture do not remain in this era. In the church era, there are no longer any apostles or prophets because none meet the criteria that are laid out in Scripture. What do remain, we learned, are elders, also known as overseers of the church, whose commission is to shepherd, or we call it pastor, the church, and and the flock of God, and, and they do so within the parameters of Scripture. They don't make stuff up. It always comes from the parameters of Scripture alone. And we observed last week in Acts 15 that there was shared leadership early on in the church between apostles and the elders that were in Jerusalem, very early on. And later, as the canon of Scripture was being closed, as the apostles were completing the writings of Scripture, um, some apostles even began to refer to themselves as elders rather than apostles. And we found in this, the setting of this letter that we're studying now, 1 Timothy, that, that the setting was the city of Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul had appointed Timothy to remain in Ephesus as an elder and overseer to handle some disruptions they had there. And Paul's opening charge to, to Pastor Timothy last week was to protect doctrine. Number one, protect, protect doctrine. And he said in verse 3, Remain on at Ephesus and instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines based on myths. And you could summarize our time, our lesson, with a declaration of Peter that we saw in Acts chapter 15 at this Jerusalem council where he said, God knows the heart, testifying to the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us Jews. And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, Peter said, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? That yoke, remember, we studied was the law. And Peter's like, Why are you wanting to to the legalistic people? Why are you wanting to put this yoke back on them and put God to the test? Because neither us, the apostles, Peter says, nor our forefathers, meaning Isaac and Jacob, nobody was able to bear that yoke as it was given to Moses at Sinai. And then he summarizes saying, we, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way that they are also. Everyone saved through faith. We discovered that Christians do not find their righteousness in nor submit themselves to that heavy yoke of law-keeping, the Mosaic Law. So what is the Old Testament law good for? Is it good for anything anymore? What is it 
Uh, what is its purpose for the church? Do we use it today? And the Apostle Paul is going to answer that question for us in Scripture. So let's pick up where we left off, beginning in verse 8. I'm going to read the entire passage for today. Paul writes, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which, with which I have been entrusted. So last week we discovered that, that Christians make no claim to righteousness. By, by practicing the ordinances as they're contained in the Mosaic Law. The feasts and the festivals, the dietary restrictions, the Sabbath day, all those requirements Peter told us in Acts 15 were, were a heavy yoke that, that not he nor his forefathers could bear. Even the forefathers didn't achieve righteousness by keeping the Mosaic Law, the Levitical Laws. Instead, the ordinances of the law were provided as an indication of the infinitely high standard of righteousness that was required of men in order to approach God. The infinitely uh, high standard of obedience that we would have to achieve in order to stand before God on our own. We're also told that the law was a foreshadowing of the righteousness which eventually would be realized in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.17 tells us, that the components of the Mosaic Law, it said that there are some 613 of them. I haven't counted, but that's what I hear. Some 613 components were things which were a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ, Colossians says. And, and when you and I catch an image of a shadow of something, it ought to, in itself, direct us to investigate what is it that's making that shadow. When you look at a shadow, what is it that's causing that shadow? What is the substance to that shadow? And the Mosaic Law is a shadow that leads to the perfect righteousness and obedience that is found in Christ. Hebrews 10.1 tells us, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, notice not a substance, not the very form of things, it can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who are drawn near. So though the law was perfect, it was good, it reflected God's standard of righteousness, by itself it couldn't make people perfect. All it could make us is law violators. The law itself doesn't make us perfect. What it does, it exposes just how imperfect we are. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us of the human inability to keep the law that was necessary, uh, every old, and it was necessary that every Old Testament believer approach God through faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And we, and we find in Hebrews 11, as we continue to look at that chapter, it's called the Hall of Faith. 
we find a whole gamut of Old Testament figures from Noah to Sarah, Joseph and Moses, even Father Abraham. They all pleased God not by obeying the law. Abraham was around before the law. But, but they pleased God by faith. And to emphasize how everybody in the Old Testament pleased God by faith, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me. Time will fail me. I couldn't even talk about how great this is with faith. But he says, for time would fail me if I were to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. I could belabor this all day, and I'm not going to, but let me just state very clearly so that there is no confusion. Nobody was ever saved from their sins by observing the Mosaic Law. Nobody. Old Testament or New Testament. It was a yoke that nobody, Peter assures us, could ever bear. Perfection was was too much to bear. And emphasize how impossible it is to be saved by keeping laws. Uh, The Lord's brother James tells us in his letter, he makes this point in James 2, verse 1, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. can't even stumble at one point. So in attempting to be righteous by the law, you've got to bat a thousand. For your entire life. Any takers? No. Only one person ever did that. And it's not you. Only Jesus Christ ever kept the perfect standard of the law. And, and I used this illustration, I think, about a year ago, but, but it's so good, I've got, I need to repeat it. My dad came to faith late in life, started bearing fruit late in life, and, and got very excited about Christ, and, and he was in his 80s now, and uh, yet he loved to watch the History Channel on TV, which just mixes up all kinds of facts. He always got to beware of, of Bible stuff on that, but he used to watch it all the time. And... One day I went over there to see him in his apartment, and uh, he says, Today I learned there are two ways to be saved. And I'm like, oh no, what am I going to have to undo? What has the History Channel done to me? And he said, yeah, I go, well, go ahead and tell me, Dad. He goes, yes, you can either believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, or you can be perfectly obedient to God just like he was. I smiled. I said, yep, that's right. You can either believe in Christ or you can be perfectly obedient to the law as, as Christ was, perfectly righteous. Well, when looking at the law, we also need to realize that there's a component of the law called circumcision that, that became equated with or, or became symbolic of the law. Uh, if you were going to attempt to keep the Mosaic law, if that was your goal, circumcision was the first necessary step. You've got to start there. It was, it was done on the, the newborn male's eighth day, still a baby. And uh, Jews, understandably then, saw this rite of initiation and circumcision as, as the beginning of law-keeping. And the Mosaic Law is a unit, as James said, so to be righteous before God, you've got to keep it all. So you're going to start at circumcision. And, and those 
who mistakenly viewed the law as becoming righteousness, uh, becoming righteous, they viewed it as a ladder to climb to God. Those who, who thought that would have to begin with circumcision. There's no going around there. There's no end around on that. And, and symbolically, it's square one, and law-keeping is not faith in Christ. It is faith in yourself. That is what law-keeping is. You have faith in yourself to keep the law. And the law-keeper has said in his mind, you know, all that stuff about grace through faith and trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in myself, that grace, you know, that sounds all right, but you know what? I think I'm going to go it alone. I think I'm going to go it alone. Does anyone here want to go it alone? And try to keep all of these requirements, 613 requirements for your entire life? Who'd want to go alone? And, and there's no way as a pastor that I'm going to suggest that keeping even one component of this law, neither circumcision nor dietary restrictions nor the Sabbath day, is a means to please God. Colossians assures us it is not. In fact, you've got to be extremely cautious, especially as a pastor or church leader, by implying to people that, that you have to mandate tithing in the church. You've got to be very careful about how you word that. And today's sermon's not about that. That is a different passage. But if you're going to mandate the law on someone, you better be very careful. You better be very careful because you even stumble at one point of the law, you're guilty of the law. So if people think they're becoming righteous in something other than Jesus Christ, if they think that they're gaining righteousness by any form of law, well, we'll read in a minute what Paul says about that. It's not a good situation. It's not good news. It's bad news. So when we're forcing someone under the law, we're placing a really heavy yoke upon their back. And that's not happening to me, and I fear actually for any pastor who does that. And for anyone who thinks they can please the law through law-keeping, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, this is the response to that. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Notice Paul calls it a yoke too. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Sound like James? You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. That's very serious. If you think that you are finding your righteousness in something other than Christ, by keeping laws, by keeping the ordinances of the Mosaic law, Again, circumcision being the initial right into that, Paul says you haven't understood. You haven't understand, understood the grace that comes through Jesus Christ and the freedom from that yoke. If you think you're going to earn your way to heaven, you've been severed from Christ. Not good news. Yet we still have just droves of, as I talked about last week, Christian pastors across America who are preaching law-keeping that you need to keep these certain components of the law, and they choose their favorite ones. They don't choose all 613. And they put people under the law. They place this yoke of slavery on people's backs. That's what Paul saw with Judaizers. They wanted to draw people back in under that yoke of slavery. By comparison, I quote our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Grace is light burden. A lot better than the law. Paul writes a few verses later in in that chapter of Galatians chapter 5, which I just quoted, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The believer, in a sense, is it's we're lawless. Yet you've been you've judiciously kept the law by being in Christ, because Christ kept the law. When you are deposited into his body, is representative as though you have kept the law yourself because Jesus kept the law. You are in Christ. You are perfect because of what He did. He was perfectly obedient. You were not. He was our substitution. He lived for us. He lived righteously. He died for us. He paid our penalty for our sins. And He rose from the grave, proving that He is Lord of all. He saved us from that yoke of bondage and death of the law that no one was ever able to keep. The only way that you are under an obligation to keep the requirements of the law is if you are an unbeliever. Then you are required to keep it. Because unbelievers don't believe that Jesus kept it in their place. That's a very bad place to be. And if that describes you today, you are required to keep the entire law. It is a unit. That is very bad news. It's not good news. We'll end with the good news today. But first, the bad news. So in verse 8 of 1 Timothy, Paul is talking to you today, the would-be lawkeeper, who thinks they're righteous through laws. Because he says in verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Make no mistake, Paul says the law is good. The law still has value and purpose. It is an instrument to deter evil. In fact, that's the reason that so many people want... The, the Ten Commandments removed from our steps of our capitals. They don't want to be reminded of how righteous God is. They want to take that out of, out of the public debate. In a minute we'll see why. But the law was never to be used as a stepladder to become righteousness, as we said. So how do we handle the law appropriate as Christians? Look with me at verse 9. We read, Realize the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. Not made for us. Those who have trusted in Christ are free from having to achieve that perfection. Now, that doesn't mean we can, all of us can just go and sin however we want. Because we have a Lord now, Jesus Christ, who we are attempting to please. So we can't just go do whatever we want, and that would be handled in, in Romans chapter 7. You fight with this body of sin. You try to obey God, yet we still have this sinful nature that tries to draw us back to disobedience. Yet we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit that causes us to want to serve Christ. So the law still has value. Um, Christians are very moral people. We strive to keep the Ten Commandments because we want to please God. But, but we don't see our righteousness in keeping the Ten Commandments. We see our righteousness in Christ who kept the Ten Commandments. The law is for unbelievers. The law is for unbelievers. Verse 9 continues. But the law is for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers 
and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. God's law is perfectly suited for lawbreakers. Perfectly appropriate for the lawless. And the law is perfectly appropriate to sit at the doorways of our state capitol to remind people that they are going to be accountable for what they do behind those doors. We're all morally accountable. Our righteousness is in Christ. And in this list of sins that we see here in verse 9, Paul magnifies how, how completely contrary our society behaves to the Ten Commandments. We see how completely contrary our communities act to God. Completely contrary. And first we see on the list there, the lawless and rebellious. Rebellious people, they're the type of people who will not be subject to any rule. They won't be ruled by anyone. They're, they're insubordinate to divine authority. They break the first commandment that says, You shall have no other God before me. They refuse to submit to God. They f- refuse to submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord. Instead, they, they submit to every other God that they fashioned as important in their mind. They adapt their lives and their schedules to circle and, and, and their lives to focus around these other gods, these lustful pleasures, while disregarding the one true God, they're rebellious. They don't want to follow God. Next on the list, we find ungodly and sinners. These break the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And the ungodly and sinners are constantly placing things which are fashioned with hands as a priority before God. They're ungodly idolaters because they love their stuff more than they love God. Let's reverse this principle. What are the third and fourth commandments? You remember from Vacation Bible School with the, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Three and four. Two fingers. Okay. I didn't graduate from vacation Bible school this year, so I haven't got my diploma. But you, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What is the description in verse 9 that Paul says are the next list? Unholy and what? Profane. Unholy and profane. So they don't regard Jesus as the Sabbath rest from the law. Christ is our Sabbath today. And, and they profane God's name. They break these commandments by profaning the name of Jesus. They profane, profane the name of God. So they're batting four for four right now. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. How does a passage say that the lawless behave? It says that they do what to their fathers and mothers? They kill them. They kill their fathers and mothers. Literally, they smite their fathers and mothers. And, oh, nobody really does that, right? Nobody would ever do that in this day and age. Really? How much is disrespect ingrained in our culture for parents? You just got to get in the supermarket checkout line and see it. It's everywhere. Disrespect for parents. 
That's, that's what our culture does. And, and we, in our study in 1 John, if you remember, it taught us about hate, and it said, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 1 John 3, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So Jesus taught this same thing, that hate is equal to murder. How many children's teens and even adults hate their parents? How many would like to murder their parents in their hearts? It's, it's, it's rampant today. Disrespect for parents is rampant today. The sixth commandment then, thou shall not kill or murder. What's next on Paul's list? Murderers, manslayers. What's the seventh commandment? Shall not commit adultery. That means you'll have no sexual intimacy outside the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. And look at verse 10. Paul includes not only the sexually immoral or whoremongers, it's translated, but also homosexuals, some translated sodomites. And both of these break God's seventh command for moral sexual purity. And Jesus defines that, by the way, in Matthew chapter 19. People wonder about Jesus ever speaking about marriage. He does very clearly. You can go to Matthew 19, write write a note down. And Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. And he says, Have you not read that from the beginning God made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and will be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus himself says the very reason that God made male and female was for them to be joined together in the marriage. That's the whole reason for the sexes. You won't see that today in our culture. And in fact, our culture rebels directly against that. I've got a quote here. This is from 1981 out of a series about this and and what they saw in 1981. Here we're in 2016. And uh, this is from the Expositor's Bible Commentary written by a host of individuals. And uh, the summary is this. Paul goes on to say that the law is made for adulterers and perverts. That, that would be the NIV translation. Homosexuals is a better translation. The last term is arnesekoites, which means literally home, male homosexuals. The word occurs only once elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where it is stated that homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. Despite its condemnation being condoned by some church leaders today, homosexuality is categorically condemned in both the Old Testament and New Testament. It is a peculiar sin for which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It is widely recognized as one of the causes of the downfall of the Roman Empire, and its rapid increase today in Europe and North America poses a threat to the future of Western civilization. This is back in 1981 that they're writing about this because it's God's Word. It's, there have been sinners from the beginning. Nothing new going on here that hasn't always gone on. It's just the way that it is embraced by our culture. And uh, another thing that you need to realize is when you go search that term in Greek in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans chapter 1, um, this passage here, that you're going to run into 
a lot of people, a lot of ungodly people, trying to redefine that word. And they're going to say that it doesn't mean homosexuality. That's not what it meant. It just means someone who would take another man by force and have sex with them. That's not what the word means. The word means male homosexual, a male who lies with another male. So don't get tricked into these websites. You Google it, and they're going to pull you right up, and they're, they're going to give alternative understandings that have no factual basis in history or in the Greek language. Don't be fooled into that. It says what it says. The translation is accurate. So a Christian cannot believe that homosexuality is normal or acceptable to God. Well, let's not stop there. What does the verse say before we get so hotty-totty? You also cannot be a Christian and suggest that premarital sex is acceptable before God. Any sexual immorality is unacceptable before God. That's called fornication. We got a rough we got a rough situation in our country. Cohabitation, homosexuality, not the unpardonable sin. You can come to know Christ and be a homosexual, but you're not going to like it. You're going to fight it just like I fight some of my sins. Everybody is struggling against the flesh. We need to love them as well. Stand firm for the truth, but love them as well. What is the Eighth Commandment? Let's move on. It says, uh, you shall not steal. What's the sign for that, Gerald? VBS, you shall not steal. You should not take someone else's stuff. In verse 10, Paul writes, kidnappers. ESV translates this enslavers. The NIV says slave traders. Those are fairly accurate. The King James translates this as men stealers. It's a word that was used to describe in that day of someone who unjustly forces another man, a free man, into slavery. They stole their life from them. It was also used uh, to describe slave traders. Those who would steal other men's slaves and then resell them on the slave market, the black market. So they were men stealers. And Paul alludes to one more commandment here. What is the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Verse 10, what do we find? Next on the list. Liars and perjurers, right? Liars and perjurers. So Paul's list to Timothy here that he writes to him very closely reflects the Ten Commandments. Everybody's breaking this stuff. This is what he's saying. Everybody's guilty. And though Paul fails to mention uh, the 10th commandment to covet, he gives this blanket statement at the end. And he says, and anything else that is contrary to sound teaching. Blanket statement. Pretty much everything that's contrary to sound teaching. So essentially Paul's telling Timothy that the law or 10 commandments is used appropriately to expose lawbreakers for their unwillingness or their inability to keep the law. Did anyone in here see this list and find anything in there that you have broken? Anything? Never taken the names Lord of the name uh, the Lord's name in vain, even once, ever? You've broken the law. Never skipped a Sabbath day of worship which is Saturday. Did you miss it yesterday? 
You're a lawbreaker. Sunday is the Lord's day. Sunday is not the Sabbath day. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. We rest in him. Sunday is the Lord's day. But even if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of breaking God's law, and the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. So the law is used lawfully when it's employed to prick a person's conscience about sin. And, and, and the law won't uh, do that if the Holy Spirit hasn't already placed that person under some kind of conviction for what they've done wrong. So when a witness... Uh, when we go out to talk to people, we pray beforehand that the Holy Spirit will go ahead of us and be convicting people that are going to be in our path so that then we can share the good news with them that they can be freed from that yoke of bondage. We pray that God will make them right for the gospel and then we have the ministry of proclamation, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of spreading the good news of the gospel. So how would we apply this today? This, this passage about the law, how would we apply it? One way is when you approach someone to witness, it is lawful for you to use the law to gauge whether someone is underneath the Holy Spirit's conviction. It is lawful for you to use the Ten Commandments in that way. You can't use them as a way to come to know God. You have to come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ. But you can use them to gauge people. And have you ever heard of of the ministry called Way of the Master? Yeah. Ray Comfort. And what he does, he has this ministry that he teaches. It's a ministry approach to evangelism. And he takes the Ten Commandments and and uses them to prick people's consciences. So he walks up to them. I know that Blake has done a good bit of this and others. You could ask Pastor Weiler and myself how you might employ this. Um, But in short, when, when witnessing to people, it's sometimes useful to ask unbelievers why they think God would let them into heaven. Why would God let you into heaven? And usually what you're going to hear is they think that they're a pretty good person. They think, well, you know, I've been a good mother. I've paid all my electric bills, most of them. I've been pretty good. And then you tell them, really, you're a good person. Well, let's check that out according to God's righteous standard found in the Ten Commandments. And you say to them, God's third commandment is that you shall never take the Lord's name in vain. You ever done that? They'll go, Oh, yeah. Then then you ask him, you know, God's ninth commandment is that you shall not bear false witness or lie about your neighbor. Ever said any gossip or lie about your neighbor that you couldn't substantiate? And they're like, yeah. Then you might say, you know, the eighth commandment says that you shall not steal. Have you ever taken anything that does not belong to you? Then they'll start to get in cold sweats. They're like, They're under the conviction. They're like, whoa. Then you hit them with the good one. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And then you say that Jesus' interpretation of this, he redefined it. He added to it, let's put it that way. He didn't change anything. Jesus is God. Nothing there has changed. But what he added is this. That if you've even looked at another with lust, you've already committed adultery with that individual in your heart. Those people are like... Oh no, it's not good. And, and, and so you tell him, you say, you've just told me, you've admitted yourself that you're a lying, blasphemous, adultering thief. You still think you're a good person? And you're going to get one of two responses. 
Either they are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they're going to become contrite and they're going to acknowledge, you know, I'm not a very good person. I'm under condemnation from God. I haven't kept the commandments. I haven't pleased God through that. And they're going to be right for the gospel, the good news. Or they're going to say something really ridiculous like, well, I don't think God's really even all that concerned with sin. At that point, if they, they are not convicted in their heart that they're a sinner separated from God and headed for eternal punishment in hell, you can't argue them into heaven. All you can do is pray for them and move on. There's no use just trying to argue with them if they won't acknowledge themselves even a sinner. How, why would they think they need a Savior if they won't even acknowledge they're a rotten sinner? So the sin has to come first, then the solution. But my, the best summary that we've had today on the function of the law is from the Apostle Paul in our Scripture reading earlier from Galatians 3. Let me say it again. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin. What that means is everyone is under the judgment of sin. There is none righteous, not even one among us. And he goes on, So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came... In Christ, that is. There was faith in the Old Testament. But before faith came, in Christ came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up from the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, or schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified through faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the law functions as a tutor. It teaches us that we aren't good. That we need to seek forgiveness that is not of our own. We need to seek righteousness that that didn't come from us. And that leads us to Jesus Christ as the solution to our law-breaking. Once you become a Christian, you're no longer under a tutor. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You don't have to bear that yoke of burden anymore. You don't have to keep the... Ten Commandments perfectly, which is a good thing because nobody here has. Verse 11 says, This is the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I, Paul says, or we here today have been entrusted. And by proclaiming the gospel, we are attempting to remove that yoke of burden from keeping the law away from people's shoulders. Not to put the law onto their shoulders, which so many try to do today. To illustrate this, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus entered the synagogue. Do you remember this? It's in Luke. And he opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he read this prophecy concerning himself. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has set, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Every time we go out to witness, we are setting captives free from the condemnation that is incurred by the law, the breaking of the law. Remember, anyone who stumbles at any one point is already guilty. You're done. That's a really heavy yoke to bear. But the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to preach the gospel to the poor. We've received that same great commission to go preach the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness is available through Jesus Christ, the one law keeper. 
And Jesus was to proclaim release to the captives. The captives are those who are kept in captivity under the law. They're slaves to the law. They're imprisoned by the law. They're serving a death sentence. Anyone who's trying to keep the law, besides Jesus, has failed to do so. And it's like the Green Mile. You're just waiting for your death sentence. You've got to have someone intervene. So we tell them by faith they can be set free from that death sentence. And Jesus gave sight to the blind. Not only did he heal the physically blind like blind Bartimaeus, he also healed, healed the spiritual blind. The spiritual blind cannot see their separatedness from God. They don't think that they're all that bad. But Christians are called to lead them to the light of the gospel so that they can see. Part of that is employing the law. And we set free, finally, the oppressed. There are so many people inside and outside of churches across America who are oppressed by taskmasters, giving them different sets of rules and rituals and ceremonies and laws to keep and traditions in order to satisfy God, they believe. That's wrong. We liberate those who are oppressed by the heavy yoke of legalistic righteousness, legalistic rules that lead nowhere but to hell. You can't please God through them. And instead we declare to them the favor which is in the Lord. It is the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus said, and this good news is worth repeating, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Grace is easy. Trust in the one who did what you can't. Believe in the one who is perfectly righteous, and understand that you're not. You could never approach God in the state that you're in here today, ever. Christ is the one through whom you can approach God. He is the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation, as Connie played earlier. You do not know what tomorrow holds. We need to pray for you if you do not know Jesus Christ. And if you have questions, if you are a new visitor, been visiting for a while, haven't gotten to meet me, I'm going to stand down here again so that you could have the opportunity to come and talk to me and we could talk about Jesus Christ. If you've never received Christ and you're still trying to please God by laws, let's talk about that. Don't go home without getting this set straight. Gerald and I always say, you never know when a Mack truck is going to be coming around the corner. Don't know when the end is coming. Let's pray. Dear Lord, wow, what a burden you've lifted from us, Lord. To not have to find a way to become righteous on our own, Lord, through meditation or through rules or law-keeping, Lord, or praying a certain number of times per day, Lord, or, or all the things that we hear day in and day out that the world is trying to do to please you, Lord God. Yet your Son came and lived a perfect sinless life for us. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you He's so perfect and pure and holy. Thank you for bringing us to Him so we can worship Him, honor Him, glorify Him in all that we do, Lord. Help us to overcome our sin, which still plagues us, Lord, so we can live a life that's pleasing to you. One that's reflective of you, Lord, that would draw others to that light of the gospel. That people would want to hear the good news, Lord. We pray today that if there's anyone here that hasn't understood this, 
that they're still trusting in themselves rather than trusting in our Savior. Lord, uh, convict them. Cause them to trust in you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for it. In the holy and exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen.